Hello, and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and it's so great to be here with you for the first full-length episode of Parallel on the Relay FM network. If you need a refresher about what Parallel is, go back to episode zero, which I published last week. Learn about the show, learn how I ended up on Relay, and who the heck I think I am in the first place. Today we're going to talk about computer history, and I have a couple of great guests with me who know a lot about it, either from excavating it or from having lived it. Stephen Hackett is my first guest. He is the co-founder of Relay FM. He runs the 512 Pixels blog and collects a lot of Macintoshes. Hello, Stephen. Hey, how are you? I'm great. It's good to have you with us. And uh, my other guest is Larry Skutkon, who is the Director of Technology Product Research at the American Printing House for the Blind and a long-term uh, accessible computer user, programmer. I, I don't know if you collect anything, Larry, but you, you've been around computers for a fair bit, haven't you? I just collect history. <laughs> just collect history. Well, it's it's great to have you on Parallel. And I wanted to bring you guys together because both of you have some perspective about technology history, computer history, and we'll, we'll sort of get into the difference a little bit later. But I think the best thing to do to let people know who, who we've got here and what we're going to talk about is to sort of get, get an idea of where you come from in terms of uh, computer history. So, so Stephen, let's start with you. What was your first computer or the first computer that you worked on? Yeah, sure. So I remember my parents buying a Windows 95 machine. They they owned a small business. And I guess around 95 or 96, I, I would have been in elementary school. And they started digitizing their business. And so keeping up with uh, invoices and billing and stuff on this, you know, uh, Packard Bell, I believe it was, tower with a CRT and built-in speakers and stuff. And that machine lasted a really long time, uh, but I don't really have any fond memories of that. Kind of the computer I like to think about when I first sort of became interested in computers really was in high school where I, I first met the the Macintosh as part of the like student newspaper. Uh, I was editor-in-chief of that my senior year of high school, worked there three years during school, and that's really kind of where I met like the iMac G3 and the Power Mac G3 all in one. And and that's really sort of ground zero for me is that high school media lab. How about you, Larry? Your first computer a little further back than that, maybe? Just a bit. In fact, I was thinking, gosh, I've still got a couple of those things you're talking about there, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I star, my first computer was a um, TI-99-4A. And... Um, this was, gosh, I'm guessing around early 80s. I'm not sure the exact year. Um, but the reason um, I got that is um, this, my uh, brother-in-law had a Commodore, and uh, we would play with it a little bit. But um, I'm, I wasn't able to participate much because I'm totally blind. And when this, um, I, I read that this TI-99-4A had a, speech synthesizer that you could plug into the side of it i thought hallelujah the day has come and um, it did it, it wasn't quite as easy as it is today because uh you had to tell it to say everything there there were no such thing as a screen reader even then in fact i, I wrote my first screen reader as a uh, sort of a framework in the basic language and then i would write software in between the lines that made it talk. And uh, 
this was really funny because this was actually before disk drives and you would you would store your software on a cassette tape and I would also uh, before I got the screen reader written I would list out the program and record it on a cassette and go through it to try to find the bugs in it so um, yeah when the Apple Apple came out with the speech synthesizer and a uh, kind of a screen reader I was I was really in heaven but yeah, that TI was that was good learning experience, and uh, I knew right then and there I had the bug. It was good stuff. So, if you don't have a screen reader, how do you, if you don't have any sort of speech, how do you make a screen reader? Well, you you uh, use the snowball approach. You build it one little piece at a time. <laughs> um, you know, if I remember right, I think you had to use some kind of print statement to another device and. You know, you would start building up routines uh, that would would do that, and then you would call those routines to speak things, and uh, yeah, you just keep building on one a little bit more and more. And then your next machine was an Apple II. Is that where you went after that? Yep, an Apple IIe, nice machine. And you didn't have to build the screen reader for that, or did you? Well, where, where did where were you programming on this? As far as that goes. Uh, that, I started out uh, writing in AppleSoft Basic, and it was amazing because the um, the synthesizer came with a screen reader called TextTalker. And at a, after I started working at APH, we actually got to uh, work on TextTalker a little bit and expand it out when the GS came out and things like that. But um, yeah, it would uh, read out everything that um, was on the screen and echo your keys as you typed them and everything, and then you could uh, review the screen. So um, I started out with AppleSoft, and then I started using, I uh, started learning assembly language on there. And in fact, I wrote my own editor because there wasn't any accessible editors. So, um, I, you know, I wrote a editor on there and then uh, would... Uh, uh, write this assembly language and compile it or assemble it into a machine language. And, and in fact, that's the way I built the word processor. I just kept making the uh, more critical time-sensitive parts in assembly language because it was so much faster and uh, turned into a, a really neat program after about a year or so. Um, in fact, the uh, state of Kentucky started purchasing it for medical transcribers in the state. And that's that's how I ended up in Kentucky and at APH even. So were you selling it on your own? It wasn't an APH product. You weren't working there at that point when you had the Yeah, process, this right? was long before APH, before I was okay. at APH anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Stephen, you went from being somebody who really liked the Mac, as a lot of us when we first encounter it do, to somebody who has, well, Let's just go ahead and say it. A crazy collection of Macintoshes. How many do you how many do you have, Stephen? You know, I, I counted them all for a video pretty recently, and it's something like forty-five machines uh, in the studio, and then I've got sort of a cache of them uh, stashed away in the attic as well. So it's probably close to fifty. And that really started um out of that that same interest. Like when I first met the Mac, the idea that like lodge itself in my brain and it's still here all these years later is that I can use this computer to take an idea that I have and put it into the world, right? So whether today it's mostly podcasting, but at the time it was articles I was writing or 
newspaper pages I was laying out, you know, t- talk about things that have gone away over time. Like I'm really good at Cork Express and no one cares. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's that idea that the Mac is really just a tool or a series of tools to help me express an idea. And I, of course, at the time wanted the, the, the best that I could get my hands on that wasn't super great, like in high school or college, you know, um, but I wanted to sort of explore that ecosystem, explore those tools. And so the first Mac I ever really collected was an iBook G3. This was well into the G4 and G5 era, but I got it from a friend who had gotten it from the school district where they, they had parted it out. Um, so this, I still have this iBook and it has like our school systems logo, like burned into the lid, which is uh, a little painful to see, but, um, and it kind of went downhill from there or uphill from there, depending on how you look at it, uh, with, uh, a present from a friend in the form of a G4 cube. And I just became really interested in how these tools had changed over time. And I'm definitely a hardware guy. I worked as, uh, an Apple repair tech for a long time in my career. And, uh, I've always interested in how these machines go together, but really the hardware is just a vessel for the software and the software is where all the magic happens. And so I, I collect them now because I'm interested in the hardware and, and I like to see how it's changed. I like the way they look, but also as a way to help preserve the software that they contain. And, uh, that is a much harder thing to do than preserving hardware and, and something that, um, is uh, only going to get harder over time, I think. So do they run? Do you attempt to make them run? Or do you mostly say, I've, I've got this model, I'm, ex- I'm content with that, or do you want sure. them all to be able to run? Uh, I've got a few items that I have, you know, I, I was able to get my hands on one and it didn't work, and that's okay. Like my, I have a Next Cube that doesn't run. Uh, I know what it needs, but parts are very difficult to come by. Um but the majority of stuff works, um, it, it, you know, so I have a, the series of G4 towers. All of them work. Um, most of my iBooks work. Most of the notebooks work. You know, occasionally I'll, I'll boot something up that I haven't run in, in a couple years and realize that, you know, the hard drive failed or something. But if you keep them where you, where you run them at least every once in a while and kind of keep tabs on them, uh, generally they'll hold up. You know, you've got to worry about things like PRAM batteries leaking. And uh, so, you know, that's something to always replace when something comes in or just remove it from the board if you're not going to run the machine. And so the stuff that I have in the attic, none of those have batteries in them because those batteries leak, they'll eat through the logic board, and then you have a big problem. Uh, so a little bit of care when they come in can go can go a long way. But yeah, there are definitely things like, uh, for instance, my Power Mac G3 All-in-One, the Molar Mac, it's hideous. It weighs, I don't know, like 100 pounds. Uh, it was an education-only machine that they sold for like nine months. And uh, I looked for years and years for one. And occasionally they'd come on the market, but they'd be way too way too much money for me. And one finally popped up, and the guy said, I don't know what kind of shape it's in. But he wanted basically next to nothing for it. And after I paid shipping to get to Memphis, it was a little, a little bit of money. And I've gotten it in. And again, I think I know what's wrong with it, but it could take me 10 years to find the parts and, and that's okay because that machine's really important to me for like emotional reasons. It was the first computer I really used at the high school newspaper was an all-in-one. And so I just, I, I'm happy that I have one. And one day, hopefully I can get it running. But if I can't, that's okay too, because I've got other machines that can run the software that it can run. 
how do you uh, how do, uh, what's your observation on the evolution of the software over all that time? Does it feel really funny to go back to one of those old ones and try to run? Uh, yeah, it it does. Um, it, it's interesting too because you you know you think about whatever you're running. So say you're running like System Seven or Mac OS Eight. That at the time represented Apple's best thinking about system software. But now, 20 years later, it's it's almost laughable unless you filter it through that view, that viewpoint of in the in the day this was the best thing on the market. If you were an Apple user. Um, I think that changes a little bit when you get into the OS X era. I've recently spent a lot of time in early versions of OS X for a project I'm working on, and that you can really feel the evolution, and you can feel when you're in 10.1, 10.2, it begins to take shape You know, the more that you install them and the, the, the more modern you get. So something... Something as simple as spotlight search, right? We take that for granted now. It's available on all of our Macs. It's available on our iOS devices. You can just search for anything on your computer at any time and get it within milliseconds, right? That wasn't the case until 10.4 Tiger. And and that's really kind of mind-blowing that it took, it took time for Apple to get search working on the desktop and get it where it was fast. If you run spotlight on G4, it ain't quick because it's got a, it's got a, it's got a, look at all that metadata. And so things like that Apple has added over time. It's really neat to see when they come online, when they come into the OS, and then how they evolve. You know, some things evolve heavily over time. Other things, uh, say like the preview app or some of like the other system apps, they don't they don't evolve a lot. You know, they get updated for system compatibility, but you know, image capture today is basically what image capture was 15 years ago. And I think that's because Apple wrote a really good tool and they haven't needed to to revisit it. So it's it's interesting to see how things evolve at different paces depending on what they are and, and when they were introduced. The user interface stuff is interesting. It feels a little bit like when you've been away from home for a really long time and you come back and something that's familiar is still a little bit off because you've been away. And I feel that way every time I see old, old system icons, System 7 or pre-System 7. I mean, I was, you know, I remember when System 7 came out and that was a big thing and then OS 10 came out and that was a an even bigger thing, although the original OS 10 was kind of terrible. But still, it's there, there's just something that's familiar but a little bit a little bit off and I you know I don't even know what it would be like if I was trying to do work but just the experience of looking at it is is kind of it, t- it does take you back I mean my first Mac was a Mac plus and so I and I got this hard drive a hard drive imagine that I had a hard a 20 megabyte hard drive Ooh. that had games on it they're like uh, there was a breakout game and a couple of other things and and I haven't booted I have that Mac plus because I'm it's the one nostalgic thing I have on Mac wise I guess but I haven't booted that in a long time, but I know the last time I did, I certainly booted up that breakout game, and it was like, oh my god, it's back to a really. It, it just it felt super familiar, but also like I had gone into a, the black and white part of my life somehow. You know? Right. <laughs> but yet the software on everything else was even further behind all that. Sure. Gives you some perspective. Stephen, have you collected Apple II's at all? Uh, I've got a couple. I've got a two GS and a two C. Uh, that is a corner of Apple history that I have not, I have not gone into very deeply. Um, part of that is I think because I I just I missed that era due to age. But a part of it is too like when I started collecting, you know, five or six years ago, my initial sort of goal and about where I am now was I really wanted um, to like 
really cover like the Steve Jobs era, uh, the second Steve Jobs era. Right. And I have that more or less covered now, at least, you know, the big stuff. And and so, yeah, that that's sort of um, uh, a rabbit trail I haven't gone down yet, but it's definitely on the list at some point to really uh, get in there. Because one thing I think is so interesting, and Larry, you mentioned about the Commodore machines, there are really vibrant communities around these platforms. Uh, the Commodore is probably the best example, honestly, probably better than the Apple II as far as like really involved, uh, dare I say, rabid fan base. Like there are people, and I promise this is true, there are people building new games and new software for the Commodore 64 and the 128 and these other machines and selling them in mass today on the internet. Like it's funny you say that because there's a apparently there's an emulator that runs Apple II software on Windows and people have been contacting me over the years to try to um, get the last releases of some of this early software like Text Talker mm-hmm. and ProWords and some of this other stuff so it's not something that really would interest me but I, I you know more power to them that's that's cool that you could do that <laughs> I didn't yeah. know it went back as far as the Commodore 64, but I know there's been a vibrant Amiga community because obviously mm-hmm. that, that was, and that was you know closer to a graphical interface, and people turn used Amiga for uh, not, video production is too strong a word, but they did video stuff on it, and of course there were right. colored games and things like that, and I knew a guy. I guess as recently as 10 years ago, I haven't talked to him since, who was part of this local Amiga group, and they would swap software and parts, of course. Uh, but it was, you know, and, it, and you're right, it was very rabid. It was very emotional. Just the way when I talk to Apple II people, and I don't know, Larry, if you feel this way or not, but when I've talked to blind or visually impaired people who are Apple II users, their emotional attachment has something to do with the fact that it's the first computer they could actually use accessibly. But I know so many people for whom the Apple II was their first computer as a kid, whether they were blind or not. Yeah, I can see that. It uh, There's something about it that pulls you to it. And, you know, at the time, of course, it was state-of-the-art. Uh, we look at it now and kind of wonder about that but yeah i can i can definitely see that are you nostalgic that way have you ever collected hardware and kept it around nope i'm looking toward nope. the future <laughs> <laughs> oh well there goes that line of questioning <laughs> sorry <Right then. laughs> don't collect the thing <laughs> well i do have an old 56 chevy pickup in my garage here i'm trying to i, I bet you i bet you store. don't drive it too often though larry i'm, I'm just guessing I, uh, you know what i drove it into my mom's barn in 1979 and it sat there until two <laughs> years ago <laughs> All right then. Hopefully you took the PRAM battery out. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> now that you say, I remember that about PRAM batteries because even that Mac Plus I had, I think I did that at some point as, like, as I took the battery out of it. In fact, I think I once replaced it while it was still in service and then I and I took it out later when I put it out to pasture because I had that Mac Plus I, I, and one of the reasons I was nostalgic for that one because it was my first computer that sure. I owned and it was the, the computer that I basically learned everything about the Mac on. I taught myself how to use it. I did desktop publishing, all that stuff you do. And then when I was moving from California to Texas in 1997, I had the opportunity to get rid of it, to take it to Goodwill. And I literally ran out to the car where my husband was packing things away and said, no, no, don't take it. And I still have it in my closet because there was a time when I was working as a freelancer and I would literally, I had a, I have a great bag for the Mac Plus and I used to carry that thing around to clients. Oh, yeah. 
and it was when you're wearing uh, when you're wearing high heels and it's a hundred degrees in Texas and you're carrying a Mac Plus. That's something you don't forget easily. So. <laughs> I, I wish I'd have kept some of my old Apple Twos. Uh, they, they would be interesting to have around. And you know, and you were talking earlier about the Apple Two C, and uh, one of the things I remember on that that was so odd is that they had a switch on it to switch to to change to the um, Dvorak keyboard layout. And, you know, you would press that and your keys would be all over the place. And I, I never quite got it. But funny thing is, I'm, I'm totally switched over to Dvorak now. I, I'd feel right at home with an Apple IIc with that switch. <laughs> there were people that were really rabid about Dvorak, even in the early Mac days. I didn't pay much attention because it just never excited me. But I, there were, I think there was software you could use that would would map you over switch the map over to a Dvorak and people were people were into it yeah uh, I yeah. never really got it but so how, how did you end up making that switch uh, the the reason I made it was because we were writing a typing tutor uh, at APH and I was I got bored with ASDF and <laughs> I got bored <laughs> got bored with ASDF and a sad dad had a fad so uh, <laughs> It's amazing how many words you can type on just on the home row with the Dvorak layout. So that's that's how I got started, and I never went back. I'll take your word for it. I never have tried that, but um, <laughs> yeah. So, Larry, just generally, APH, I tell people a little bit about what APH is. And the reason I'm asking this is because APH has quite a history. And if you were to trace assistive technology back through the ages, APH is obviously one of the places you'd go. And, and you guys, I don't think you do it specifically, but some of you guys, some of the, your, your, the staff has, has written about some of the classic APH devices. And when, when blind and visually impaired people get together, they reminisce a lot about, oh, this machine or that machine, a lot of which were before my time. But give people a sense of what APH is all about and why it's sort of the repository for, for technology that we're all a little bit nostalgic for sometimes. Well, uh, yeah. In fact, one of uh, one of the coolest things that APH made back in 1959 was the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica on cassette with about, uh, I can't remember how many hundred cassettes it was that were all indexed, but yeah. Um, APH started out uh, about 160 years ago as a way for states to get together to uh, combine resources so that they could print textbooks for blind students uh, across America. It was really too expensive for each state to, uh, you know, transcribe a Braille book or whatever. And, um, you know, as technology uh, evolved, uh, you know, APH actually was one of the first to get into recording back in the early in the thirties. And, um, I, I, our museum director tells a story that Sun Records even came to, uh, visit with us, uh, trying to figure out, uh, some, I'm going to get this totally wrong, but some, uh, ways that, uh, Elvis could make his records better or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, we we did uh, wax recordings on cylinders and then uh, pre had record presses and flexible record presses and cassettes and um, all kinds of apparatus for educational, uh, for, for ways to educate people, uh, students that are blind in the country. And uh, in fact, back in the 60s, there was a big contract with IBM to write the first um, 
translation software that would stamp these things out onto plates that you could put into a press and produce books with. Well, of course, today, pretty much everything is on demand. And back in the 80s, um, it seems funny to say this now, but... You know, there was a, there was a lot of debate about whether computers were going to be significant for education, <laughs> and uh, they people decided they were, and uh, that's how I that's how I got there. They um, hired me to uh, start adapting and teaching, uh, adapting and writing software to teach blind students some of the concepts of uh, computer, like cursor keys and mice and things like we all, you know. We all just take for for granted these days, but yeah, there's there's a really rich history there, uh, amazing place. But APH has made everything from little household devices to help somebody who's blind, you know, measure and things like that, all the way up to cassette recorders or cassette recorder players and uh, talking book machines and and Absolutely. now you know all braille displays and graphing calculators. What are what are some what's like the cutting edge for APH? What are you guys selling today that people might be surprised at? Well, a couple of things. One of them that I'm particularly fond of is that um, we're working on a project to uh, put files up on Thingiverse so people can print out their own eight-dot slates. So a a slate is a device used to uh, write Braille by hand, and normally there are just six dots in a Braille slate uh, for each cell, and in a lot of uh, scientific and technical work, you you have a need for eight-dots. So uh, this, you know, this might be a, a step into our future of how we deliver products, uh, where you can download it and print it out yourself, or get it printed somewhere. So there's that, and um, I think probably on the real cutting edge right now is a device called the Graffiti, which is the first um, interactive tactile graphics display. So it actually has an HDMI input on it. You can hook it right to your computer and get a tactile representation of your screen, or you can hook your iPhone in there. In fact, it works really nicely with uh, the uh, enlargement tools on, on the iPhone, so you can uh, you can actually get the clock icon up on the graffiti screen and watch the little hands move, which I never knew they did. <laughs> It's a pretty cool. It gives good demo, as I like to say. When pe- it's, people gather around that thing at conventions, and it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it does. We we did a, a pretty interesting demo here uh, back in August when the uh, total eclipse came across North America, where we had a camera taking a shot every few seconds and displaying it on the graffiti, and had uh, kids from the school for the blind next door over, and all our employees that are blind. Uh, being able to, for the first time, for a blind person to actually watch an eclipse happen. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm watching this video. This is really incredible. Yeah, it is. It's, so there's that. And um, another thing that we uh, came out with might not seem so revolutionary because refreshable Braille displays have been around you know, since the 70s and 80s, but they've always been expensive. So we worked in partnership with... Um, Several several groups, the Transforming Braille Group and uh, Orbit Research, to come out with the first refreshable Braille display that sells for less than five hundred dollars. So, uh, you know, it's affordable for real people to be able to buy it themselves, or grandparents to buy it for their kids. 
And it's got all the modern features, you know, it connects to your iPhone, uh, Bluetooth, and, uh, you know, an editor on it and so forth. So those kind of things. And, and, I was uh, going to say, by way of comparison, a, a professional Braille display with, what, 20 cells on the orbit, right? It, it would yeah. typically be, you know, $3,000 or more. So yeah. it's, it's quite oh, wow. a – it's real significant. And we write a. We just finished a um, software. You know, this is really. This, it, it's funny to talk about this kind of stuff. But we uh, just finished a program to help orientation and mobility teachers teach students how to judge um, uncontrolled street crossings safely. So there's simulated recordings, and you're supposed to count when you can first hear the car and they teach you how to judge if it's safe to get across and i, I don't think they included any um any electric cars in there but <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's uh, so just all kinds of specialized apps like that that you're really never going to find uh apple or microsoft writing anything like that and is that the are you working on that project are you writing that software Nope. Uh, one of uh, one of my team is uh, working on it, and we just released it here a couple of weeks ago. Cool. I can't wait to look at it. So we were talking a little bit before about the nature of the, the history of, say, technology versus hardware specifically, and about how what, what really determines how we use and think about computers is is the software. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering what each of you guys think of how easy is it to sort of go back to to understand what what software did and what where we've evolved from software aside from having all the computer all the Macs that you can boot up with software in your office right there i mean do we do we sort of do we lose something as we evolve and especially as we have greater expectations and we're looking for you know what's new from 6 months ago not what's new from 5 years or 10 years or 15 years ago I mean, I, th- I think part of that is the passage of time that things that once felt important or new fade. That's just the way the world works. But I think uh, I think another part of it is that technology has become more accessible and widespread, right? So we have moved from the era where it was just people who were tinkering and hobbyists to everyone has a smartphone and what that has done it, ha- it that it has it has made software less special because it is uh, more uh, more ambient in a way right software is kind of all around us right it's not the thing of oh i got to go to my office and turn the computer on and the software is there well now it's in my headphones and on my phone and on my watch and i don't think that's a bad thing at all because Technology equips people to do all sorts of things that they would never be able to do otherwise, but it's uh, it does sort of take some of the shine off of it at the same time. And um, I'm, I'm going to speak to that question from the perspective of a software engineer because it uh, is nothing short of amazing now to you know, have these development platforms where, you know, first of all, you can connect to the whole world uh, without even trying uh, uh, with, uh, you know, APIs that let you, the RESTful APIs to um, tap into other services and, um, 
be able to play video or audio or even have a whole complete editor just with one line of code, you know, in components. Uh, I, can, I can't count the number of times that I've written a, a simple line editor, you know, I mean, <laughs> but now you don't have to do that anymore. You know, there's, there's, uh, it's all built into the system. So you get better and better building blocks. And I think software gets, better and better based on all that foundation that's built up over the years and years so with i mean it's don't get me wrong it's still a lot of work to write a a great app but now there's so many software and hardware tools that you can uh you know for resources that you can make some incredible things that you couldn't even have dreamed about 20 years ago and, you know, you talk about, uh, you, you mentioned expectations a while ago. I, I had to laugh the other day. Um, we're, we're working with a, a company in uh, Great Britain now to do a multiple, pay, a multiple line Braille display. So uh, up to now, all the, uh, all the refreshable Braille displays have been just one line, which doesn't really help a lot with formatting and um, linear uh, mathematical kinds of things or, or uh, structured mathematical kind of things. And uh, we were shown it to, uh, you know, and, and we're talking about putting the graffiti next to it so you can have a whole textbook. And we're showing it to a kid over at the um, School for the Blind, and he's really disappointed because he he thinks it should be like an iPad and the Braille should just pop up on there and the graphics. <laughs> and, and it should. It will one day, but it's just not there yet. But that's what people expect now. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's good and it's, uh, it's hard to keep up with. Is it easier or harder to come up with ideas for software now that so many of the basic building blocks are kind of taken care of. You don't have to write a word processor or, or, or an editor. On the other hand, you have better tools that give you more flexibility and more options. Much easier, and you can write many more things than you could uh, a while back. You know, we're, we're working on a big project right now to do um, indoor location services and you know, we've got these resources like OpenStreetMap that's already got this fantastic database, and we can just put our data in there. And if you know, if somebody else wants to um, write an app that that does a better job of indoor navigation, that that data is there, or to use it for something else. Um, you know, even even the GPS capabilities and the compass and the accelerometer are all really interesting aspects that you know you you just didn't have available to you a few years ago and you know by using the position of your phone and uh, and uh, your you know the compass and the gps you can do really interesting things you know it's almost it's almost the blind version of augmented reality where you can point your phone around and say, oh, there's a water fountain over there. There's the, there's the door to the hallway. And, uh, you know, and it's all based just on, on uh, the, the compass and the accelerometer and the strength of the Bluetooth signals that are around. So, yeah, things have gotten, you can be so much more creative now. And, and sure, you can, you know, you can have a basic editor, but what people are doing now is taking that basic editor and adding 
word completion and uh, IntelliSense and all these things that make you more productive as a writer. Stephen, do you think because you have all those uh, old Macs around you, or I was trying to think of a, a sort of a euphemism, but let's just call them old Macs because that's what they are. Do, do you <laughs> think you do you think you perceive new products from Apple? differently because those Macs are present in your life, whereas the rest of us are just waiting for the new thing and we're kind of hoping to get rid of our old one so we can have the new one. I mean, I wish all computers were orange. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think I have a little bit of a unique view on new hardware. I don't know if it necessarily comes from the collection or if it comes from my background, like I said, being an Apple repair tech for, you know, five years or so of... There's a repairability aspect that Apple has dropped from their hardware. Um, even you know, 10, 12 years ago, when I was starting out as a as a Mac genius and then as a consultant, you could take apart a lot of stuff, and and it was still uh, very component based inside. And people then were complaining that Apple was getting rid of repairability. But if you fast forward to today. You know the the iMac Pro in front of me, the MacBook Pro in my backpack. There's very little that could be done inside those machines, even if you're certified and have right. all the tools. You know, forget doing it on your own. That that ship sailed several years ago, and I think that's something to to consider. You know, Apple uh, and a lot of other uh, industry members, but Apple puts thinness and lightness and rigidity above repairability and their and you know when they sort the priorities for hardware design that's that's their decision to make that's fine but it does come with some trade-offs i think it comes with one there's there's a the idea that you should be able to repair everything you own sort of the right to repair movement uh, i think some of those guys are a, a little a little far uh, afield with some of that stuff but there's something to be said if you had a macbook in 2007 and the hard drive died you could just buy a hard drive and put it in. And now the SSDs are custom and they don't fail like the hard drives used to, but if they do, you're you're kind of just stuck with Apple to to fix it and that can be expensive and can be difficult if you live in a place where there's not a store or an AASP. Uh, but then there's also the the idea that it's just you know, if someone getting into this, it's it's harder to sort of open a computer up and poke around and understand. I think I think why there's so many people who are um who were in that generation where like the Apple II was their first computer. And it was so easy, you know, like the two, the two E to, to take the top off and like really get an idea of what it's doing, putting cards in, uh, adding expansion. And, you know, the computers today are a thousand times faster, a thousand times more powerful, but we've lost something in that. And I'm not saying that Apple, you should put card slots back in the iMac Pro, uh, but I, I do think that's something to consider and to think about in the way that we use our machines, the way what we do with them at the end of their lives. Uh, I'm not saying everyone's got to become a, a collector or a hoarder like some of us, but that's something to consider. You know, Apple touts the recyclability of their computers, but how many of those computers actually get recycled? Like that, that is something I think about a lot in the way that cons especially consumer hardware has gone the last 10 years. Do you think the uh, today's equivalent of that uh, ability is probably the Raspberry Pi and the Arduino kind of movements? Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I think people who want to tinker with hardware now, 
that's exactly where they are because you can hook a lot of stuff up to it. You can learn programming. You can you know you can hook it up to a Mac or a PC or a Linux machine and or connect right to it and program directly on it. Uh, I think that's I think that's great. And the difference is that you can get a Raspberry Pi for fifty bucks and you're not spending whatever it was to buy an Apple IIe in the day. So in a way, some of that stuff has become more approachable. Um, but maybe not as widespread, if that difference makes any sense. And people mm. used to be able to say that PCs were a lot more, not only repairable, but you could actually build your own, and, and there right. wasn't a lot of opportunity to do that with a Mac. And, you know, I when I was a Mac consultant, part of what I did was put memory and hard drives in and take them out and cards and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was nothing compared to building a PC or, or building a Linux machine. And it, it seems like that, world is coming closer to the Mac because even though there are, you know, gamer machines that you you could certainly build your own PC, but if you buy a PC laptop, it's not going to be much more repairable than a Mac. It's a little thicker maybe, but you still have SSDs that are welded onto the motherboard. Yeah, absolutely. Apple's not alone in that. And and that's even sidestepping the entire conversation about there's no repairable smartphone or tablet. (laughs) Right, right. Put that aside. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think I think on the Windows side, there will always be room for the enthusiast who wants to build their own PC, whether that be for gaming or for uh, development or for research, something like that. Uh, I think that'll always be there, and I'm glad that it's there. Um, I part of sometimes I do kind of wish that I could build my own Mac because I would make different choices than Apple has made. But that, the reality is that's never really been true, and so there's always that trade-off that if you want access to Mac OS X. Mac OS, then you're buying Apple's hardware. That's how it's always been, uh, you know, ignoring the clone years. And that's just part of the trade-off. That's the trade-off I'm willing to make because I, since 2001, have had my workflows built upon OS X. And the tools that I use every day to run my business and to record podcasts every day, like I could do that on a PC if I had to, but the tools I prefer are on macOS. So I'm willing to pay the hardware tax to, to be able to do that. That's true of me as well, because I spent years as a writer and you can kind of write on anything. There's some limitations in the sense that if you're submitting your work, at least back in the day, you had to use Microsoft Word and oh, certain yeah. certain other apps. But once podcasting became more important, a more important part of what I do, I was like, no, I have to have something that's reliable. I mean, there's this whole discussion of there are people who are recording podcasts on iPads or trying to, and there's always some problem with that workflow and some worry that in a, in a there might you might be a situation where that's not going to work for you because the software it's going to come, it it will happen, but right. uh, you know it's a, it's a different problem than unreliable hardware or software that is you know bootstrapped, but still. Um, it is. It, it's something. Yeah, that's something I think about more as I, as I do more podcasting. It, it keeps me tied to the Mac, even when I think. I mean, we have we have a Linux machine in our house that's a media server, and we take hard drives in and out of that all the time. But uh, and and for that sort of thing, it still kind of makes sense. But if you're trying to do production on a computer, I'd kind of like it to be nice and nice and stable. No, no alpha software. No uh, uh-huh. weird cards that I bought off uh-huh. of Newegg. You know. Larry, have you ever uh, fooled around with hardware and built your own machines, that kind of thing? Um, I hate to uh, break this line of questioning, but no, I never, <laughs> even, never even wanted oh, to. Oh, man, you, you just mean, write software, though, so you're I, better than me. As a 
<laughs> I did put a lot of cards in those Apple IIe's, though. <laughs> yeah, sure. One reason that I wanted to talk to, to Larry on this show was that he and I were on a, an Apple 40th anniversary podcast a couple of years ago, and I, I learned a lot about how far Larry's history with this stuff goes back. So I, I guess I wonder what your overall, what impact Apple has had in your computing life? You've obviously used other platforms over the years for both your own choice, by your own choice and, and, and work. But once you got beyond the Apple II, and, and we all know that there were sort of dark and accessible days in the Macintosh world, but, but what was your experience with Apple after the Apple II was, was in your life? I um, I used a Mac uh, MacBook Pro at work for several years. Um, it it was uh, there was a lot I loved about it, but I mean the short answer to your question is, you know, especially when it comes to the iOS side of things, Apple has made such an impact on everyone's life, and from the perspective of um, someone who wants to who who wants to provide tools to run on the hardware that's every everyone's using them you know that pulled us into the the apple sphere uh, rather quickly but um you know just from the user's perspective uh you know i don't want to sit here and gush too much but it's it's a it's an amazing device uh the, the iphone and the ipad uh you know, you you can actually do recording. People people sell microphones to hook into the lightning uh, connector. Um, there's even infrared cameras that can hook into that connector. Um, the, you know, the impact. I, I think Apple has made an impact on the whole world, and uh, you know, especially for someone who is blind, that <clears throat> their seriousness about the way they treat accessibility has raised the bar for the entire industry, the entire world. It's not good enough to have something that half works anymore, which we put up with for years and years. And you know, I'm not, I'm not going to claim that I, you know, I, I put out stuff out there I know could have been better, and you know, I'd, I'd be ashamed to put it out today. You know, looking next to what what's available on the iPhone. Um, I, I, I still respect um, the Apple um, uh, laptops and, and uh, desktops. I, I don't happen to use one anymore uh, so much. But, um, yeah, the impact is incalculable. Do you choose other platforms because they work better for what you need to do for your development work? or I mean, not, not that you should have to choose Apple. I'm just curious, like, what is the deciding factor for you in picking a platform? You know, it really boiled down at work. I could have, uh, I mean, development is part of it. A lot of us have to have Macs now because we're doing iOS software. But a lot of what made me switch back over to Windows was the inaccessibility of the Office suite at the time. And I understand that's all addressed and rosy now. So maybe my next one will be a Mac. All right, Stephen, how many Windows machines are you collecting over there? Zero. <laughs> I got a virtual machine uh, for the. You know, there you go. That's about all you want. Windows, uh, that SSD lives locked in a cabinet most of the time, though, so I can't get out. Has Has Windows been a part of your life by force at any point, or have you always been able to stick to the Mac? Um, there was a, about a five year period in my life where, in my IT career, I was managing, you know, a fleet of Windows machines. 
Um, at that point, I carried uh, a PC, but still had a, a MacBook Air as well. Um, so I've always had at least a, a foot in both. But any time that I've had the opportunity to make that decision for myself, it's been it's been the Mac. It, it, it speaks to me in a way that Windows doesn't, and it's got for me now, you know, years and years of workflow and habit sort of built into what I do and into my muscle memory where I can sit down at my Mac and really make it sing in a way that I can't, that I struggle to do on other platforms, including the iPad. Honestly, I'm not, Yeah, I haven't moved much of my work to the iPad cause I, I just, the Mac solves that problem for me and I don't feel like I need to, uh, much of the chagrin of some of my other co-hosts on my other relay shows who are iPad only or iPad first, um, but uh, you know they'll they'll be strong. It'll be okay, guys. <laughs> That's the the thing I've finally figured out because I have gone you know to Windows and Linux on occasion either because of a work specific work project or because I was assigned a machine. And there's that little while where you feel, wait a minute, I'm I'm a pretty good computer user. Why am I not getting this? And what you realize it's it's that last. 10 or 5% of, of efficiency that you're missing. You know how to do things on the Mac. You have muscle memory and it, you just, and, and you can even make yourself more efficient when you, you're given a new piece of software. You know quickly how to make a keyboard shortcut work. You know what will conflict, what won't conflict with things you've already set up, what pieces of software you like best to do particular tasks and the like. And, and it is, I, I admire people who can switch back and forth, but I'm glad not to have to be one of them. Well, uh, we always end every episode of Parallel with the famous one more thing question, uh, which is, given that money is no object and you can be for sentimental reasons or productivity reasons or completest reasons, whatever reasons you would like, uh, what computer would you like to bring into your life uh, of any vintage? Stephen? For me, it's uh, I'm going to go historical, and it may be because I w- recently saw one of these, and there's not one in my collection, and then I looked up how much they go for and realized it's not going to be in my collection anytime soon, uh, but that's the Lisa. So listeners may not be ultimately familiar with this, but it is a machine that Apple produced before the Macintosh. Steve Jobs worked on it before he got kicked off the team, and honestly, it introduced a lot of the things that the Macintosh actually made famous. So it had a user interface, it had a mouse, but it was really like way too expensive and it didn't do very well. Apple ended up porting, you know, the early Mac system software to it, which didn't go very well. And they buried a bunch of them in the landfill in Texas. So not a great ending to this story, but it's a weird little chapter in Apple history and uh, one that I would like to, to own at some point, but uh, I got to keep saving my pennies. So, Normally, Larry, I'd let you go next, but since my answer was going to be the same as Stevens, I'll just jump on yes. that because <laughs> and and there's a couple reasons for it. First of all, I got to sit down in front of Elisa once because I was working with somebody who ran a business land franchise, which was a computer store retailer in the early eighties, and he had a Lisa that Lisa's Rate started at ten thousand dollars, so that was your price of entry. So in early eighties, I mean, that was remember the first Macintosh came out, and the price was like twenty five hundred dollars, which was still an incredible amount of money. But the Lisa was ten thousand uh, dollars, and so I got to sit in front of one and touch a mouse for the first time and see a graphical user interface for the first time, and 
I, it was just astonishing. And just the idea that that is the roots of what became the Macintosh would make me want to have one. But since that was Stephen's answer, I'll just uh, pick another one. And this is, this is a sort of weird one because the first computer I ever worked on uh, was an IBM 370 because uh, my now husband, then boyfriend, had a job at an electricity consulting company. And that was an, a machine they had in-house, the IBM 370. And it had these refrigerator-size disk drives <laughs> and a, a printer the size of a kitchen counter and about as tall. And I forget what incredibly small amount of memory it had, but they had these six enormous disk drives. And just to remember how far we've come, I think I'd like to have one of those disk drives maybe in the garage. And oh, and the, the work I did on it was I, I, I wrote a couple of uh, papers, term papers on it, and then printed them on dot matrix printers. Well, they were like the big giant printer. And I, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And I turned that into, I believe it was a journalism professor who wasn't the least bit impressed. She <laughs> would just have preferred that I typed it on a typewriter. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so Larry, what about you? What would you like to have? <laughs> well, um, what I would like to have doesn't yet exist, but it will come soon. I, I, I don't like to say, I'm, I don't go for the old computers. They don't really do anything for me. <laughs> But uh, what I want is an autonomous guide dog. Oh, there you go. I like it. So, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I can, uh, you know, uh, dog guides are are great now because um, you can give them a general direction and they can can follow a path. But they they get distracted and, uh, you know, they don't have access to maps. Um, But... You know, especially as we move forward uh, with indoor navigation, it, it's really hard for a blind person to attend, say, something like CES uh, with a cane or a dog. I mean, it's just too many people. But, you know, if you had a little guide robot, um, you could say, you know, I want to go to booth uh, 620 or the next booth to the uh, right or the booth across the hall. And, uh let it guide you around the people and uh, all the obstacles. And, yeah, so that's what I want as a guide robot. <laughs> and if it looked like a dog, then people would still come up to you and go, oh, may I, may I pet the robot? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, you guys, it's been wonderful to have Larry, both Larry and Stephen on the show talking about computer history. We didn't get too back, far back into the cobwebs, just enough to remind people who were there and uh, intrigue people who were not of what computer history has been in the past, oh, 20 or 30 years or so. So so let me give each of you guys an opportunity to tell people where they can find you on the internet and what you do. Uh, Larry, let's start with you. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, APH.org is um, APH's website. My email is, well, I'll give you the easy one, technology at APH.org. Cool. And you don't have any current podcasts, right? You you are a podcast pioneer. We didn't really get to talk about that, but you're not really doing that anymore, are you? I'm not. You guys are doing such a great job. I don't really uh, have a, <laughs> uh, anything else to contribute. <laughs> well, well, you you let me know if you come up with anything, and I'll always be uh, happy to have you back. All right. <laughs> now, Stephen, I know you have a few podcasts, so you say say as many of the names of them as you would like or where you'd like people to find you on the internet. <laughs> Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I am at ISMH. There, uh, I write the blog 512pixels.net, and you can find that blog now on YouTube. Do some YouTube stuff if you like old computers. There's lots of stuff there. 
Uh, but on Relay, I host a bunch of shows. Uh, go to relay.fm slash shows, and you can you can find a bunch of my stuff there. Um, so if you like nerdy technology conversations like this one, you'll find something else that you like, I promise. Sounds great. Thanks so much to Stephen Hackett and Larry Scootcon for joining me on The Parallel today. Just want to remind you that we are now a part of the Relay FM family. So if you want to find out more about the show, read show notes, see who has been on past episodes, please go to relay.fm slash parallel, especially if you're a longtime listener to the show and you need to subscribe to the brand new feed because the old feed won't be getting any new episodes. You can find links to feeds for all your favorite podcatchers over there on the website and and a general purpose RSS feed in case your podcatcher isn't listed. You can follow the show at Parallel Pods, that's all one word, on Twitter, or follow me on Twitter, S H E L L Y. I would love to have your feedback about the show and especially your guest suggestions. And especially, especially if you have a great idea for a pair of guests that would be good on this here show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Parallel. Bye for now.